We're a little more spread out than usual, so if you feel so called to move yourself closer as I preach about unity in the church, you should feel free to do that. Um, we'll put your name on a list if you don't. Just kidding. Okay, uh, let me pray for us, and then we'll look at John 17 together. Father, we're grateful for moments like this when... Uh, we are able to come together as your people and say yes to the work that you're doing in our midst. And so uh, I just echo what was prayed in this moment for Michelle and for our students, and I pray that for our whole body, that you would continue to bring forth in us evidence of your spirit at work, and you would continue to heal us and change us and grow us and make us who you want us to be. And so as we Look at these words of Jesus spoken directly to you. I pray that you would draw us in to the power and to the life found in this prayer of Jesus and that we would be changed by it for your sake and toward him and toward you. And we pray that in his name. Amen. When uh, I was a kid, I did not I have I've told you before, and some of you know them, but I have two Younger brothers, Will is three years younger than me, Britt is eight years younger than me, and Britt and I always got along fine for the most part because of the age difference, but Will and I being so close together and completely opposite personalities did not get along fine uh, until we were grown-ups, truly. And uh, there was this theme at Will's rehearsal dinner where as people stood up and spoke to him and to Beth about their relationship with them and who they were, several different people stood up and said something like, or it became identical over time because people caught onto the theme. When Will and I first met each other, we didn't like each other very much, uh, which was a great lead-in for me to stand up and say, uh, when Will and I first met each other, we didn't like each other for very, very much. And but uh, that played out in all kinds of different ways. One particular instance that I remember pretty clearly is a day that we had a fight over something. What? I don't remember. Uh, but we had a fight over something, and my mom intervened early on and separated us and sent us both to our rooms. I was a teenager, probably 13 or 14 at this point. And then mom left and went outside to do something, which, uh, I mean, I'm just waiting to leave my room and go to his room and to let him have it after being separated, before being able to speak my piece. And when I walk into his room, I guess I was more like 15 or 16 uh, as I think about the story. But when I walk into his room, he's laying on his bed, uh, curled up, praying, uh, which is a real bummer when you're headed in to give someone a piece of your mind. Um, and I just froze because I'm, I'm, number one, I'm thinking, you know, before the Lord, can I yell at him while he's praying? Uh, I'm afraid of what might happen to me if I do that. And number two, I'm trying to be, think like, oh, is he repenting to the Lord for what he's done to me? Um, and as it turned out, he was curled up talking to a girl on the phone <clears throat> and not praying. But I didn't figure that out until I had passed up on my chance. Um, I, I tell you that story for no constructive reason except to say that when uh, people are praying, we often can't know what's going on. When people are in that sort of secret, quiet place with the Lord, uh, we don't usually know what that's like. You don't know what that's like when I do that. You know how I pray when I stand up here, um, but many of you have never heard pray, and I've certainly never heard you when you're alone and in a quiet sort of sacred place between you and God. 
And so what we get here in John 17 is a, a very clear picture, word for word, a prayer that Jesus prays to the Father, which is a really intimate and powerful thing. And it's significant that we get to hear these words, that we get to be a part of this moment. Um, and so that's what we're going to do today is we're going to look into this prayer of Jesus. And I'm going to have several things that I put on the screen to kind of give us some signposts as we go. We're going to walk through the passage in three different sections. It breaks up pretty easily in three things that he does in this prayer. But what I want to say the last thing that will be on the screen I want to put up first because I think it is ultimately the theme that I want us to take hold of in this prayer of Jesus. And that is this, that the prayer that Jesus prayed God will not fail to answer. And I think it's extraordinarily important as we spend these months and as we spend our lives talking about and working toward unity in the body of Christ and living into community with one another as members of the body of Christ, that we remember that Jesus prayed for this to happen and God will not fail to answer that prayer. There are lots of reasons for us to grow discouraged and tired, to give up, to think there are just too many roadblocks to this ever happening. But Jesus prays for it, and God will answer that prayer. All of our thinking, all of our praying, all of our working for unity will not be in vain, and that should drive us more deeply into that life and push us to believe that it matters. And to trust that despite our many failures, despite the many times we're hurt or disappointed by others in that endeavor, that Jesus will do it, that the Father will do it. Jesus is asked for it, and the Father will answer that. Before we get into this passage in John 17, let me tell you just real quickly kind of where it falls, what Jesus, there's a, there's a conversation happening between Jesus and his disciples that this kind of punctuates. And so in chapters 15 and 16, and really even backing up further than that, we get some of that conversation between Jesus and disciples. And chapter 15 is where Jesus tells them that he is the vine, that they are the branches, that they grow out of him, that they have to stay connected to him to have power and to be who they're made to be. He tells them to remain in him, to remain in his love. He tells them the really encouraging news that the world will hate them, but it's okay because they hated me first. And then in John 16, he says a lot of different things, but the real thing I want you to know that he says that we'll allude back to in John 17 is uh, as they come to, there, there's kind of an awakening that's happening with the disciples who haven't fully understood who Jesus was and don't fully understand it here, but there's a moment when, uh, when they say to him, oh, we, now we believe you're from God, which is funny to me because they've been given up everything and following him around. But they, as we often do, have these new epiphanies of faith, and they have one of those. But he tells them in the context of all of that, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. And that's when they say, um, oh, now we see you more clearly and trust that you came from God. And Jesus says, it's good that you believe that I came from God because it's going to get hard. You're going to be scattered. You're going to face trouble. But if you really believe like you say you believe you can know that even then, in that trouble, in that hardship, I'm with you. And then he says that thing that many of us take hold of often. He says, I've, I've said all this to you so that you can have peace in me. 
You're going to face trouble in the world, but take heart. I've defeated the world. I've overcome all of that. Okay? So that's the conversation they've had. That's the last thing he said before John 17 is take heart. I've overcome the world. And then John records what happens next this way. Now, after Jesus had said this, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. Father, he said, the moment has come. Glorify your son so that your son may glorify you. Do this in the same way as you did when you gave him authority over all flesh so that he could give the life of God's coming age to everyone you gave him. And by the life of God's coming age, I mean this, that they should know you, the only true God, and Jesus the Messiah, the one you sent. I glorified you on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. So now, Father, glorify me alongside yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world existed. This is the first part of the prayer. I'm sure Jesus didn't like outline his prayer beforehand and break it into three parts, but he does three really clear things. And the first thing he does is pray for himself. He says a prayer for himself in this moment in time uh, to the Father, um, and he asks the Father to glorify him, to bring him fully into his presence and fully into his place. And he even alludes there in verse 5, it's a return the glory which I had with you before the world existed. And so the first thing I want to say about this part of the prayer is that this is a prayer about the life of God's coming age or eternal life. Some translations say, instead of that phrase that's used here, say eternal life. This is a prayer that Jesus is praying about the eternal age of God. When Jesus prays to be glorified, when he prays to be with the Father in this particular way, he's moving more fully into his role as king of all time, space, in the universe. That sounds like a Marvel phrase, but it's Jesus' phrase. He is moving back into the space that he occupied before he came, before time began on earth into that space of unity with the Father. But now that he has come into our time and space and said what he said and done what he's done, he's assuming his place as king. The Psalms say that he will rule the Messiah, which Jesus references himself as here in this passage. The Messiah will rule over a kingdom that stretches from sea to sea. It says that his kingdom will run from the river to the ends of the earth. Daniel in his prophecy, says that one like the Son of Man will be exalted to share the throne of God himself. And that's what's happening here. It's what Jesus is saying. It's time for me to share the throne of God himself. He's done all the teaching and modeling he's been sent to do. It's all about to culminate in his death and resurrection, which he knows. And knowing that, here he is praying to assume his rightful place of dominion over all creation which is the beginning of the age to come, the life of God's coming age. And this is a significant point in general for us to understand that's what's happening here because these are important moments in our faith. But it's also significant for the sake of our understanding and responding to what he's gonna pray as a whole in John 17. And here's part of why that's so significant. That life of God's coming age began then. He's not praying for something that we're still waiting to begin. Our lives now 
are supposed to be lived in this age that Jesus references, are supposed to reflect the reality of God's age. This is not, in other words, a prayer about how things are going to be in the afterlife when things are perfect or easy. You understand that distinction? Jesus is praying about something that is beginning then and now that is, uh, has impact and effect on earth starting at that point. It's not just words about the future afterlife. It's a prayer about Jesus becoming king and those he gathered to himself then, his disciples, and those who would become his by their testimony, which is us, the church, now and forever. It's a prayer about us living as though that kingdom has begun and is real because it has and it is. It's important to remember as we move further into the prayer. Next thing I want to say about this first section is this. I'm not sure what happened there. This is a prayer we can, add, we can and should embrace and enter into. And I just say that to encourage you to make this prayer your own and, and to take this home. Don't just listen to a sermon about it today, but take this home and enter into Jesus's prayer for his kingdom, for his people, for unity. Unity with him, with the Father, and with the body. This is not... We're about to get into the unity part of the prayer. Uh, so when I, when I encourage you to enter into it, I want you to spend some time, not just on the part where he talks specifically about unity, but in these first five verses where it becomes clear that he's not just talking about unity for unity's sake. He doesn't leave space for a unity that is rooted in some abstract version of human unity or love that just says, everyone's all right, just live and let live. These are words about being rooted deeply in the Father and in the ways of Jesus, which show us an active, deeper kind of love that's restoring all people and all creation to its created purpose. This is Jesus saying, Father, draw them into the unity that we have, a unity that's rooted in you and in me. And so th th this is, I think, important because there's just culturally, there's a ton of talk about unity. And even in the church, there's a lot of talk about unity and harmony and peace and messages about unity and love and peace, however well-intentioned they are, that exalt human versions of love and peace and goodness and or that rely on a human ability to be loving and to be peaceful and to be good will always come up short. Real unity requires real love which, and listen, this is, I think, at the heart of the gospel. Real unity requires real love. And real love, as Jesus defines it, as God defines it, requires the work of the cross. It has to be at the center when we talk about unity. And the work of the cross requires, that, that unity through the work of the cross requires an acknowledgement that God's ways can only be restored in us and in the world and by Jesus. And that requires that we root all of our ideas about and our efforts toward love and peace and unity in full submission to the Father. And that's, Jesus has given us that model. We're following this picture of his life, which was lived in full submission to God's will and which has demonstrated the unity that he describes here and that he will pray that we live into ourselves. Okay? So th those are the implications here. He's praying for himself. He's praying about uh, the, the coming age, the coming life of God's age. 
And he's praying for a unity that is, it is rooted in him. And we can enter into that, that prayer. Okay? So the next section, he moves from praying for himself to praying for his disciples who were alive at that point. And this is what he says, starting in verse 6. I revealed your name to the people you gave me out of the world. They belong to you. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything which you gave me comes from you. Remember the things that he said in John 15 and 16, including whatever I ask in the Father's name, whatever you ask, he'll give. He says, they know that everything which you gave me comes from you. In verse 8, I have given them the words you gave me, and they have received them. They have come to know in truth that I came from you. They have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for the people you've given me. They belong to you. All mine are yours. All yours are mine. And I'm glorified in them. I'm not in the world any longer, but they're still in the world. I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name. The name you've given to me so that they may be one just as we are one. When I was with them, I kept them in your name, the name you've given me. I guarded them, and none of them has been destroyed except the son of destruction. That's what the Bible said would happen. It's a reference to Judas. But now I'm coming to you. I'm speaking these things in the world so that they can have my joy fulfilled in them. I have given them your word. The world hated them because they are not from the world, just as I am not from the world. I'm not asking that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They didn't come from the world, just as I didn't come from the world. Set them apart for yourself in the truth. Your word is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, so I sent them into the world. And on their account, I set myself apart for you, so that they too may be set apart for you in the truth. Jesus knows that his disciples are at risk that he's leaving them in a world that is threatening to them, that is threatening to his ways in many ways. And this is an acknowledgement that there is a way of the world. This is an important distinction of our faith that we can't lose touch with. There is a way of the world that is different than God's ways. Jesus couldn't be any clearer about that here. There's a way of the world and there's a way of God and those who follow Jesus will not make sense in the world's eyes at many turns. They will not be, make sense. They will not be celebrated. And Jesus acknowledges that even in prayer here. He doesn't just pray, and this is what I want us to, one of the things I want us to see here in this part of the passage. He doesn't just pray for unity. He prays that those that the Father has given him will be kept in the Father's ways, will be rooted in the Father's truth. In verse 12, he says, when I was with them, I kept them in your name. I guarded them. None of them has been destroyed. And then down in verse 15, he says, I'm not asking that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. And I want us to see two things from this part of the passage. One is that Jesus is as concerned about our roots in God and truth as he is about us getting along. This is a prayer about unity, and it's why we're talking about it at the conclusion of a series about the church and about community. But it's unity and us getting along is not his only concern. He is as concerned about us being rooted in the Father and in truth as he is about anything else here. He's not just praying that when he, when he prays things like keep them, protect them from the evil one. He's not just praying that the devil won't kill us. 
He's not just praying that we won't be burglarized or that we won't be killed by terrorists, that we won't be ridiculed by people who think we're crazy or narrow-minded for believing that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. Remember that he's promised us all of those things will happen. So when he prays for us to be protected from the evil one, he's not just praying that we'll be protected from bad things happening to us. He's certainly not praying that we're going to be insulated from all the things that we rightly or wrongly label as tools of the enemy. He's not praying that we'd be insulated from cussing or smoking or drinking or gay people or poor people or people who don't like us or people who don't vote like us. That's not what he means here when he prays that we would be protected from the evil one. Remember, he told his disciples that he's sending them into that world, not keeping them from it. And here he tells God that just as you sent me into the world, where I, the subtext is where I took on flesh and lived among these people and gave myself away for their sake, just as you sent me into the world like that, he says, so I sent them into the world. I'm sending them in the same way that you sent me to live in the world that is like that. And then he prays, and on their account, I set myself apart for you so that they too may be set apart for you in the truth. So he's not just praying that we be safe. He's praying that in the world where there is lots of danger and opposition to the ways of God, that we would be his, distinctly, unmistakably, clearly his in that world. And unity is part of that, but it grows out of our being rooted in him as people. And that's the second thing I want to say about this part of the passage. The unity that he prays we experience requires these roots. We can't get to the unity part if we're not clearly rooted, rooted in him. We will only grow in to the kind of unity that Jesus has with the Father, which is precisely what he prays for us, that we would have the kind of unity that he has with the Father. We can only grow into that kind of unity if we're rooted in the Father and rooted in his truth. All right, third part of this passage is where Jesus prays for us specifically. Verse 20 I'm not praying simply for them. I'm praying, too, for the people who will come to believe in me because of their word. I'm praying that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they, too, may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory which you have given to me, so that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them and you in me, yes, they must be completely one, so that the world may know that you sent me and that you love them just as you love me. Father, I want the ones you've given me, to be, given me to be with me where I am. I want them to see my glory, the glory which you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And then he concludes his prayer with these words, Righteous Father, even the world didn't know you, but I have known you, and these ones have known that you sent me. I made your name known to them, yes, and I will make it known so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. One of the really cool things that happens here, what happens in all of scripture, in my opinion, is that Jesus prays specifically for unity and specifically for all of us. 
If you can imagine for a minute some historical figure that you really admire, that uh, you kind of find life-changing, who you never met, who died years before you were born, and a historian suddenly discovers something that this person wrote to you, about you specifically. This should impact us that way because Jesus in verse 20 is praying. He says, I'm not praying simply for them, his disciples who are living at that moment. I'm praying too for the people who will come to believe in me because of their word, and that's us. This is a prayer Jesus very clearly utters for us. And he's praying that we may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they too may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. And then down in verse 23, he prays that they must be completely one so the world may know that you sent me and that you've loved them just as you love me. That's a prayer for us, for you and me. Um, this is where he gets into unity and praying for unity for us specifically. And so I think it's worth asking and, and addressing a little bit what does he mean by unity as he prays for it here. Um, and so let me just say a few things about that. The first is that I think, um, sorry, there's a spirit of unity and there's a work for unity. I'm going to explain what I mean by that. Um, but I think there, there are, th it's important for us to understand both parts of what's involved in unity. Uh, there, there is a spirit of unity. And when I say that, uh, I mean, it's, it, there is a, there is a spirit that we should grab onto uh, and take hold of and believe in regardless of our circumstances, that we are made for unity, that we are unified with other followers of Jesus, that we are unified with other followers of Jesus outside this room and outside our normal operating spaces. And that's a spirit that I think we should carry with us at all times. It's what we should and sometimes do experience when we come into contact with other members of the capital C church, the universal church beyond just our congregation with whom we don't and probably won't ever have real community just because of our circumstances. There's a spirit of unity that we can experience and carry into those interactions. It's, it's a spirit that we should lean into when we go into context with other parts of the church besides our own, where we know there's some disagreement or potential for disagreement. It's the spirit we should carry as we know we don't have unity, even within this room or this space and people that we have close relationships with as we work toward unity with one another. But I don't think he's just talking about that. I don't think he's just talking about an attitude or a spirit of assumed unity, though that's real and part of what he's talking about. I think he's also talking about a unity that we have to work for. He's talking about doing the work toward unity. And what I mean by that is it's not enough for us just to put on a unified front and pretend things are good if they aren't good. Uh, we have to be willing to be people who engage the spaces where our unity is at risk, where our unity is disrupted. A false unity is no unity for us or for anyone looking on. And I submit that when we take hold of false unities, we do more harm to the witness of the church than we do good. Because you'll, you'll find in certain spaces where there isn't unity, people saying, hey, let's just get along, people are watching. <laughs> but, but if we just pretend to get along, it's going to be found out. But be, 
because by God's design, Jesus reveals it here, by God's design, the world is looking to the unity of the church as part of its search for who God is and what Jesus has to do with that. So when they look and see false unity, they say, this is Jesus. It will be found out. So there is a work for unity that we have to do. We can't just pretend. We can't just say, peace, peace, where there's no peace, the scriptures say. There are some real breaches in the unity of the church that we have to acknowledge and work through. That happens among us. It happens in a big picture way in the church beyond our, our space here. By way of example, there are racial divides uh, in the church, and I think uh, this happens there. Because people who have not been personally damaged a lot by that history are quick to grab onto well-intentioned shows of unity and say, hey, let's all get in a space and be unified. But people who have been damaged by that history are weary of shows of unity that aren't matched by the work of unity aren't matched by real live humility, by listening, by learning, by understanding, by mutual submission, if that's not hand in hand with the show of unity, it's even more damaging at times. And so there is a work toward unity that goes with the spirit of unity. The next thing I want to say about this is that this is not a token or a symbolic unity. This is as you and I are one, Father, Son, Unity. The unity he's talking about is rooted in, it's empowered by, and it's reflecting the unity between the Father and the Son. And that's not token, and that's not merely symbolic unity. In verse 21, he says, I'm praying that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they too may be in us. And then down in verse 23, he says, I in them and you and me, yes, they must be completely one. We cannot force this, of course, but we have to care about it. We have to work for it. And we have to work for it in the spirit of Jesus, who, though he was God, did not cling to that privilege and instead humbled himself, emptied himself of himself, and took the form of a servant and gave himself away. We have to care about this deep, not symbolic, not token, father-son kind of unity in a way that it's a priority for us to give our lives to. Let me, just a few concluding thoughts uh, as we wrap this John 17 up and this full series up. First thing I want us to be sure that we don't forget is that Jesus prayed for our unity, and I just think that's huge um, in multiple ways. Number one... (laughs) It means that it's not easy or automatic. If Jesus himself prayed for it, he knew it needed to be prayed for. He knew he had to ask and seek the Father's power as he went away. The Spirit came to be with us. He asked the Father, make them one. It wasn't assumed, it wasn't a given without the power, without the work of the Father. It really mattered It's worth us living into that prayer. It's worth us praying for it. And I don't want us to skip over that. Joining Jesus in his prayer for unity is part of your work, our work toward unity and toward community. We will not experience this unity without the power of Jesus. And it's important for us to remember that. We do have to work, but we can't work it up on our own. 
We can respond to the work of Jesus, to the prayer of Jesus, and to the Spirit drawing us into the Father by joining that work toward unity. Next thing I want to say is that unity is an essential part of the world seeing and believing Jesus is the King. This is a really powerful part of what Jesus prays here. In verse 21, he prays that we may all be one, and then you skip down to that last line, so that the world may believe that you sent me. And this is not the first or the only time he says this or something like it. Back in John 13, he said, I'm giving you a new commandment, and it's this, love one another. Just as I have loved you, so you must love one another. This is how everybody will know that you're my disciples if you have love for each other. Unity is part of the world seeing and believing that Jesus is who he says he is, that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the King of the coming age. And the last thing is the first thing I put on the screen. God will not fail to answer this prayer. Verse 26, this prayer culminates in Jesus saying, this is how God's love is in us is this kind of unity growing among us. That when this happens, that God's love is really in us in the way that it was in him. He intends for that to come true. (laughs) He intends for that to happen. That's not a promise that's gonna come up empty. And that theme is echoed throughout the New Testament. And even in Old Testament prophecy, in 1 John 4, John writes that no one has seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and is made complete in us. One translation says, God's love has accomplished its mission among us when we love one another. He intends to accomplish his mission. This will come true. In John 16, he said, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. How much more then, if Jesus has asked for this, will not God give it to him? This kind of unity. Acts 2 quotes a prophecy from Joel 2, And and it says that in the last days, God will pour out his spirit on all people. He will do what he intends to do. Philippians 1 says, the one who began a good work in you will thoroughly complete it by the day of King Jesus. Jesus began this work in his disciples. He began this work by this prayer. He began this work by ascending to the throne and beginning that life of God's coming age. And God will complete it. 1 Corinthians 15 says that Jesus must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. Disunity in the body is one of those. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. I promise you if death is destroyed, disunity is destroyed. So we join in this spirit and we join in this work for unity. We know it will be imperfect. It will be messy. It will be incomplete. We will fail at it. We will hit points of Massive failure and not know what to do with it. And we exercise grace in those spaces, but we pray for this kind of unity that Jesus prayed for and we work for it and we embrace the ways of Jesus believing that he'll complete what he has begun. And we live into that already won victory. This is done. This is won. He will complete it. We live into that already won victory of Jesus asking for and waiting for and living into the total, the thorough fulfillment of that victory in us and through us. Pray with me.